I want to look today at a very clear hero of mine, you might say. His name was John the Baptist. And he shows up in the, in the New Testament right at the very beginning. He was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah, the prophet, had prophesied that somebody would do the work of, of introducing Jesus to the people of Israel, and John the Baptist was that man. Now, I'm going to say some other things about him, but I want to plug in around Matthew 14, where John the Baptist does something that he should probably should not have done. He criticizes King Herod, who is the Roman emperor in that area at that time, and he um, criticized him because Herod had taken his brother Philip's wife. That's Herod's brother Philip's wife. And he was living with her. Whether he's married to her, I'm not sure. It doesn't matter. And because John criticized him, Herod threw him in prison. Now, I wanted to explain something as quickly as I can because it's almost a message in itself. And John really didn't need to criticize Herod because we're not responsible for those outside of the church. In the New Testament, says so in 1 Corinthians, we're not responsible. We're responsible for what's in the church. And so all through the ministry of Jesus, Jesus never, ever criticized the Romans, the emperors, the Herods, or anybody else. Never criticized them, never said anything. If he said something harsh, about their need to repent. It was to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and other people of Israel that were not living a godly life. The Old Testament, the, the leaders back there, they didn't. Some of the prophets did. They went to uh, Egypt, told Egypt what God's plan for them was, which was destruction because of their sin, and on and on. But we know that in the New Testament, it says in 1 Corinthians, that we should leave it alone. And so he was in prison because he'd stepped outside of what I believe his calling was. His calling was to introduce the Son of God as the Messiah and not tell the world that Herod had done something wrong or tell Herod whatever. And so there's an interesting um, situation happening. Here's poor John, this hero that I think a lot of people envy him. He was such a free man, lived out in the, in the desert. It looks as though he wasn't accountable to anybody except the Lord God. I could be wrong in that, but it looks that way. He didn't even dress normal. Like he, he had this camel skin that he wore over him and, and with a belt around it to hold it together. And he didn't eat regular like we do, they did back then. He, he would eat grasshoppers and other um, winged, in, winged in insects with some honey. And so here he is um, coming into Judea uh, around age 30 and pronouncing that the, the Messiah was coming. And who listened to him, dressed so funny, 
uh, with grasshoppers stuck in his beard with honey. Uh, who knows what um, people thought of him, but he started to preach a baptism of repentance. He started baptizing people, but he said very clearly as he was asked, are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Well, who are you then? I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness to prepare a way for the Messiah that was coming. So he had this wonderful job of, of introducing the Messiah, but fell on hard times when Herod arrested him and put him in prison. Now, I'm not sure what all went on in John's mind, but here he is in prison. Jesus now, uh, he's, he actually baptized Jesus before he went to prison to release him into the ministry that he had here on planet Earth for about three and a half years approximately. And so now he's in prison, and he's having some trouble with this thought life. I don't know what else I can describe it to. But one day he said um, to his, his followers, his disciples, go and ask this Jesus, who, by the way, is my cousin, who, by the way, has never visited me in prison, at least it's never recorded that did, who, who could say the word and get me free. This man who's created miracles, this cousin of mine who I introduce as a Messiah, he could set me free, but he hasn't. So I want you to go and I want you to find out, is he really the one I was introducing? Is the one the Father was sending, or shall we wait for someone else? And you'll find that in, in um, Matthew 11 when John, I'm sorry, in, yes, heard in prison what Christ was doing. He sent his disciples to ask him. Jesus' response was, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The lame, I'm sorry, the blind receive fight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Now, there's some stuff to learn here. First of all, Jesus proved himself to be the Son of God by the miracles he was doing. And that, by the way, regardless of what you might have heard in your church or in your Sunday school, those miracles were never intended to cease. There was no end to it. There's no scripture that says they were supposed to stop. We simply have taken the Bible and said, well, I guess they're all done when the prophets died or when the, the, the scriptures were canonized or whatever. But you see, the Bible never says it stopped. It's because we have, we have so become comfortable in our luxury, in our country, our rich country, that we've forgotten about the power of God and live ordinary, I call it, dull lives in many cases. And so um, a religion without the power of God Paul calls it to Timothy. And so Jesus said something interesting here in that last half of that verse. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Now the thinking of the Jewish people was something like this. When the Messiah comes, he's going to defeat the Romans and we'll be a free nation again. The trouble is they didn't understand the steps towards that freedom which John called them to take, Jesus called them to take, and this was the steps. You have to repent of your waywardness, your sin first. 
He's not talking to the world out there. He's talking to what was then equivalent to his church in the New Testament. And he's saying you have to repent. You have to turn from your wickedness. Turn from your pride and your arrogance. Turn and return to the Lord. And then I will deliver you. That was the story all the way through the Old Testament with the prophets when Israel get into trouble with their enemies. And the, the instructions were, if you repent, I will restore you. That's a common solution to your problems. But you see, in Jesus' time, they didn't do that. They didn't want to repent. They didn't want to change. They just wanted Jesus to do what they said the Messiah was going to do, which was deliver them. But they had not met the conditions of deliverance, so therefore the promise wasn't fulfilled. Now we need to take that personally. If we want our country to be restored, if you want your, your church to be restored, if you want your family to be restored, repentance is the first step. And somewhere back there in the archives is a teaching called True and False Repentance. I spend quite a bit of time on that. Please listen to it. It'll help you understand. Christians need to listen to it. I didn't understand what false repentance was many years after I served in the Lord. Got to understand what it was about, and it changed some of my attitudes. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians. He said there's a repentance that still leads to death, which means we repent, but we still are not saved. You need to listen to it. Jesus said, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. I think that means you're looking at Jesus or maybe you're looking at the pastor of your church or maybe you're looking at your parents and you say they don't do what you want them to do. You have plans of what you want to have happen in your life and these people are instrumental in making those things happen and they're not doing it. Many people have fallen away from the Lord because somebody, in their opinion, failed them, didn't do what they wanted, didn't accomplish for them what they wanted, and they've fallen away from the Lord. And so Jesus is saying, if you don't fall away because of what you expected of me but didn't happen, you are blessed. In other words, God sees in that individual that doesn't fall away because he didn't get what he wanted. He sees that somebody is serving the Lord, not because of what they can get or what can happen, but because simply who God is. And he is a God worthy to be served and worshiped and praised, even if he never does anything for us. It's interesting that in the same passage in Matthew 11, from verse 7 right through to 14, after Jesus hears the doubt that came from John as, is this really the Messiah? What does Jesus turn around and do? He turns around and talks about what a great man John was. What a lesson for us. When somebody speaks against you, or doubts that you're doing what you should be doing, whatever it is they accuse you of. To turn around and speak well of them is a Christ-like 
nature. The world will tear somebody down because you feel you've been torn down. But Christ will build up someone who has tore him down. You read that verses 7 to 14. You'll understand what I mean from Matthew 11. Now, John's sitting in prison, and all this stuff is going through his mind. I want to remind you, I've talked in this a number of times in different teachings. I will never tire of teaching it. It says in Ephesians 6 that the, that the, the thoughts are like an, a flaming uh, arrow, uh, a fiery dart, the old King James calls it. And you see the thoughts come into our mind. They're aimed at us by the demonic realm. And they want to tear down the hope which produces faith within us. They want to tear that down. And they were hitting John the Baptist with these thoughts that said, oh, he's, he, he's ignoring you. He obviously doesn't love you. He obviously is the Messiah because he hasn't set anybody free. The Romans are still in charge. Why should, why should you believe he's the Messiah? He doesn't do anything that you said he was going to do. You must have missed it. There must be somebody else coming. And all these thoughts are hitting him. And finally, he says to his disciples, they're visiting him one day, say, you go and talk to this Jesus. Go and talk to this cousin of mine because there's something wrong here. Things aren't happening the way I want them to happen. That's never happened to you, of course. It's happened to me, but never to you. So let's look at the things first of all that John knew. Matthew 3, 3. They're describing here, Matthew's describing the ministry of John the Baptist. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert. Now this is Matthew saying something, but there's another place in scripture when, when John the Baptist actually used this, when the Pharisees said, are you Elijah, are you the Messiah? He said, no, no. I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. So he knew his calling. And, and, the, and that voice in the wilderness was saying, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So John, first of all, knew he was being called by the Lord back then in the beginning of his ministry that he was going to prepare the way for the Lord. In verse 11 of chapter 3 of Matthew, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So here's John saying very clearly, this is what I'm doing, but the one that's coming right after me, this is the one. He will not only at one point say, save you, but he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. So John knew he was called to be the forerunner. He knew this was Jesus. And he said in Matthew chapter 3, verses 12 and 17, he said, and the voice of heaven said, a voice from heaven, John's in the water, Jesus in the water, John baptizes Jesus, comes up out of the water, and a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love with him, I am well pleased. So here's John the Baptist in the early stages of Jesus' ministry, the very beginning. John's not in prison yet. And, and God makes it very clear with this voice from heaven 
This is him, John. This is the one. This is what I prepared you for. With him I'm well pleased. It's interesting. Jesus hadn't even done any ministry yet. God was still pleased with him. He's pleased with you and me. Even if you haven't cast their demons and healed somebody and raised somebody from the dead, he's still pleased if you love him more than anybody else. And if you will put um, um, your neighbor ahead of yourself, you'll, you'll prefer others above yourself, the first, first and the second commandment that Jesus gave. I preached a lot on that. You should get them. And then there's another reason why John knew. John 3, verses 26 to 28. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about. So there's right there, people heard John testifying that this is the Messiah. Well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. So John says some interesting things. He said, I'm not going to receive anything from heaven unless God gave it to me. And I know he gave me the mission of, of introducing Jesus. Secondly, you ask me if I'm the Christ? No, but I'll tell you, the one that I introduced that's the one I sent him. So John had all these times that he knew for sure, he heard God, he knew the, the prophecy being fulfilled, that he was the forerunner of the Christ. But now, months later, years later, maybe, a couple of years later, maybe, he's sitting in prison because he checked Herod and his sinfulness, and he's in prison, and the enemy is hitting him with doubts, doubts, doubts. That really wasn't the Messiah. You blew it, Buster. You introduced the wrong person. Woe is you. <laughs> and I'm sure John said, woe is me, because he heard the thought, woe is you. Actually, Satan puts it in the first person. Woe is me. That's the thought he puts in him. Oh, woe is me. I introduced the wrong one. Hey, this, um, my followers come. Go talk to him. Find out. So we'd look for somebody else. Well, God looked after it, you know, because I won't go into the story, but Herod eventually had his head cut off, so John didn't have a chance to introduce anybody else. We don't know why exactly God's plan was to have him in prison. But I would suggest to you that when he had introduced Jesus and had done some things to make sure that he was introduced, even maybe days later when he talked to people and stuff, that this is the Messiah, God says, okay, your work is finished. Come on home. That would be my answer to any question and say why. But I don't know for sure. Don't start a new church on it. I don't know for sure. Well, let's talk about the thoughts that were coming into John that messed up all this time that he sat in prison in torment. Some of you know what I mean. In torment, things hitting him constantly. All this doubt, all this it's turning into unbelief and I did the wrong thing and why did you go ahead and do it? You might have known 
all this stuff going on inside of him. And you see Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, one of my, I believe, most powerful verses that we need in our church cultures right now because so many people are listening to their thoughts which contradict and argue against the righteousness of God and the words of God. We believe them constantly. We counsel so many people that can't get past what they're thinking and to them their thoughts are true and what the Word of God says is questionable. That's where John went. You don't have to go there. It's time. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10:5, we demolish arguments and every pretension. The old King James says we, we tear down imaginations and speculations. are almost like those terms better because they describe to me better what the thoughts are that's coming into my mind. And that anything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. What's, just a minute, what's the knowledge of God? Let's look at John. What was the knowledge of God? A voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in him I well pleased. That's the knowledge of God. It was the Messiah. And, and John himself confessed, the Father sent me to prepare the way. That's the knowledge of God. But the enemy was tearing down the knowledge of God with these. And John needed to fight. And it could be he didn't know because Paul hadn't written that letter yet. But you see, out of this understanding, I now today apply this to my life and I say, whenever I start getting thoughts that is challenging what I know about God, challenging what God has promised me, challenging what God has said he will do, when I get those thoughts, I need to say, I need to rise up against those. I need to fight against those thoughts. That's why Paul said we're soldiers. We have to fight. Ephesians 6 makes it clear. There's a war on. It's not flesh and blood, it says in the verse before, in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 10. It's not flesh and blood. And in Ephesians, it again tells us it's a spiritual warfare. And so we demolish all that stuff by using the things, the truth of the Word of God to tear down those thoughts that are coming into mind. This is one of the greatest failures in the body of Christ, the true believers. Many of them fall away from the Lord because they listen to those thoughts. The Word of God is there. We need to make a decision. The thoughts that are coming in are not dependable. I can't always depend on them being the truth. There are some thoughts that are good. But we have to discern what is evil, what comes from the enemy, what is attacking our knowledge of God, what keeps hitting it. It's the thoughts from the enemy, the fiery darts, the flaming arrows coming at us day after day. Some are worse than others. Some say, I hear voices. And, and so it's the enemy hitting you, hitting you. Today, they're even saying you're not really a man, you're a woman. They're, and you're not really interested in, in the, uh, the opposite sex. You're interested in the same sex. And we're listening to these voices and believing them. God said, tear them down. It's what the Bible says. God says in the early part of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, you'll find it in there. He created he created people, male and female. And Jesus interpreted that. 
He didn't say he made one person male and female. It says he made people male and female. And Jesus, when he referred to that passage of Scripture, was talking about a man and a woman being saved. No, pardon me, being married together. He wasn't talking about two males or two females. He's talking about a man and a woman coming together. So he made man completely man and women completely women. But today we're receiving these thoughts to say, oh no, there's something wrong with that. You're really not. And we fall for it because we don't know. We haven't been taught how to take those thoughts captive and take them into a place of reducing them to the lies they really are. Now, I'm not going to spend time in Ephesians chapter 6 because most of you know it. Talk about the armor of God. I'm just going to talk about uh, three different things. The helmet of salvation. Please, if you've heard me talk about this in other teachings, you probably need it again. I needed it more than once. But the helmet of salvation, that's where the knowledge of the Word of God is. And by speaking it, singing it, we get it into our hearts. And then you see, when the enemy comes at us, we take the word of God that's in our heart, because it says in Romans 10, 8 to 10, that what we know, we get it into our hearts, and what we believe in our hearts can save us because we use the mouth to declare it. So as I speak out what I believe, it's like a sword that's offensive, that drives the enemy back, but it's also like the shield that's up there to stop the arrows, a defense. So the word of God coming out of my mouth is a sword to drive back the enemy and a shield to absorb those thoughts. It may not happen instantly, but as you do it, it's worked for me, it's worked for hundreds of others. We, we call it spiritual warfare. Don't go and do spiritual warfare over your city until you're victorious yourself. I know some of have tried that and the enemy can come on like a flood because you don't know how to defend yourself. You know, Abraham saw this way back in Genesis 15 and verse 11. This passage of Scripture is God coming to Abraham and saying, I'm making a covenant with you that the people that you're going to be the father of will someday be as plentiful as the sand and the sea. They'll be prosperous. They will bless the whole world. Many people, many nations will be blessed through them, which has been proven, by the way. Still is today. We're blessed by the Jewish people. And you say, in order for, for the covenant cut between Abraham and God, Abraham had to sacrifice some animals. He cut them in half and laid them like this and some birds. And then the Holy Spirit came in a flame of fire and walked between them. The covenant was made. God had promised Abraham, if you walk with me, this is what I'll do. But you see, those carcasses are still there. And the birds of the air, some of the translations say the vultures came down and started to eat them. And Abraham had to shoo them away. Get out of here. In other words, you cannot destroy the promises of God. What do the birds represent? The thoughts that were coming. The thoughts that God's not going to really do what he says. The thoughts. Have you got that? Now, it's important that you say what the Bible says. Again, I want to remind you of Numbers 14, 28. The children of Israel had been promised that God would bring them through the wilderness, but they were stalled because every time God tested them to see if they believed that, 
They didn't believe it. Another month comes, we're going to die here. We're going to die here. Ten times, we're going to die here. God had said, I'll bring you through. And they said, no, we're going to die here. And so he says in Numbers 14, 28, you tell them, Moses, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I'll do to you the very things I've heard you say. That is so serious, folks. What you say, God says, yes, I will do it. In the name of Jesus, Father, for those that are listening, help them, Lord God. Get this into their hearts and their minds where they not only hear it, but do it, and thereby be saved from the schemes of the enemy. In the name of Jesus, I thank you, my God. Amen. Amen.